On this episode of Year One, we speak to Pavel Gertzberg, CEO and co-founder of Fluffy, startup on a mission to make pet care more affordable and less stressful. We speak about entering a new industry, the importance of having a co-founder, finding your first users, marketing, team structure and recruitment, mentors and advisors. Sit back, buckle up and enjoy the show. Welcome to Year One, hosted by me, Dio Kloppers, and my good friend, Satish Bala. On Year One, we speak to early stage founders, business owners, and entrepreneurs about the highs and lows of the early years, the challenges and rewards, and everything else in between. So, without any further ado, let's get into this week's conversation. Pavel, welcome to Year One. Really appreciate you taking some time out of your day to talk to Satish and I. We're looking forward to this conversation. and. I'm going to dive straight in with the first question that we ask everyone. We're going to get to know your business over the podcast, but we want to get to know the man behind the business. Tell us a little bit about your story. What has happened in your life? It could be from your childhood right up until now that has made you the man that you are today. That's a very deep question from the get-go. Yes. That's, yeah, you got me there. I think for me, I grew up in a very interesting family. Uh, my parents are coming from Soviet Union and I was born when the whole idea of communism switching to capitalism was kind of appearing in Ukraine and Russia. And so I was saw that the only way out of poverty is business because uh, people who were having jobs at that time were extremely poor people. If you have a, like, if you work as a doctor, as a t- I mean, it's not, no, it's not much better, but if you work as a doctor, as a teacher or whatever job you have. Unless you do a business, you were very poor, like ridiculously poor. My parents, both of them were doctors and they were getting paid next to nothing. And sorry, I mean, it's a very deep story and because you kind of jump straight into like such a deep. We love it. We love it. Let go. Let's start to reflect on my childhood, which I rarely do. But no, the, the whole idea was seeing that how country changes in less than 10 years and how much entrepreneurship was kind of the only way out or way up made me believe that you can do your job. That's good. That kind of where you build foundations, but you will never get too far in your life if you actually don't build something on your own. And I remember it was very weird when I came to the UK that actually can get very good money. It was really weird to understand that you can actually get paid very good money if you do like full-time job. And paid very little if you start your own startup. That was the biggest lie I had from that time is that you actually, yeah, probably better off getting, going to like investment banking and not starting your own business or being a software engineer. But that's what, yeah, I think seeing how country can transform in very few years and how much entrepreneurship shifted made the biggest impact for me. And actually find out what did not um, my cl- sorry, none of my classmates were like wanted to be like doctors or teachers or architects, everyone was wanted to be either a politician because it was extremely corrupt and still is, or want to be a businessman. It was literally like no one was walking around saying, I want to be a doctor. I want to be a teacher. I want to be a businessman. I want to be an oligarch. That was kind of a thing of my childhood, which is a very peculiar way for a child to grow up. I, I wanted to ask just a little bit more if you want to share around this idea of the only way to get out of poverty was business because I had, I had a similar childhood. And I think back a lot now on like, what do I remember about poverty and how much of it was really poverty 
or my perception of what it was that made me who I am today. Because in hindsight, in my 40s, when I look back, we had a pretty decent middle class life. And a lot of the poverty I experienced was my parents making the choice to live below their means. It wasn't we were poor, just my dad acted poor. And I tell everybody, my dad is the richest guy who died poor. Because he believed instilling those values of acting like you don't have enough will always make you hungry. Some cases it worked, but in some cases it messes up your skewing of the world, right? Because you think everything is from a financial perspective. So I'm curious, as you're growing up, what does poverty look the, like for you? There was definitely the case, and I was seeing my dad kind of transitioning from being a doctor to starting his like first venture, which he was he had like a thing at that time, he had like a kebab shop, which is ridiculous now. And then he built like something else and something else, and he had different businesses. So like. When I was like, when my elder brother, it was still being quite, it was, again, in Soviet Union, there was not like a poverty in a way that you would have like, un, like homelessness it was not like such a big issue. Like it would be just averagely poor. You would not have like luck. And again, it's the question, what is poor? No one was starving. I mean, I would talk about like nineties. No one was starving. We had enough food, but it was always about seeing people around you, seeing people who had mm -hmm. to back money. People who, and also it's a bit different as well as in nineties, there was a big shift in, in for most former Soviet countries where the value of currency went overnight from to nothing. You see people around you, seeing like university professors who became poor, seeing teachers who became poor and they were never like rich. They were never like too poor, but it was like, but that was, I think the worst one is you kind of like in this middle of nowhere, you're not really middle class, but you're like middle. And for me, it was. Like you, you can live your life in averageness. That's like always a choice. Like you don't want to live in poverty. Like don't get me wrong, but you can always live in averageness. Like averageness exists in every country. It can be like the poorest country in the world, the richest country, but there's always averageness. It will differ. An averageness in Switzerland, an averageness in, I don't know, Democratic Republic of Congo will be very different. But overall, right. there will be, yeah, do you want to be living in this averageness? That was always an interesting question. I just want to, I also want to touch a little bit on the only way out of poverty is to have your own business. That is how you were brought up, right? Well, this is what you believe. Yet if I look at your background, you didn't go into business immediately. You actually went into formal employment and now you've migrated into business. Now, was that by design? And that was, I needed to go into formal employment to gain the skills that I need to eventually own my own business. Or well, how did that journey take place? Or why did that particular path go? I think there are two, two reasons for that. One, ironically, my family actively discouraged me to start a business because they always knew the struggle that comes from that. And my dad was like, don't start it. Like, find a good job. Like, why do you want to do the business? Just get a good job, earn good money, enjoy your life. Like, what's like, why, what's the point? Because starting a business is easy. Like I had a mentor who always says, starting a business is easy. You go to company's house, open an account, you started a business. And company's house for people who are not from the UK is basically an online register for, for the UK government. You go there, it takes five minutes, you pay 20 pounds. If you have 20 pounds, you can start a business in the UK. Building a successful business, that's where it becomes difficult and you pretty much give up your, a lot of pleasures in life, a lot of money on that. So on the one hand, there was kind of an active discouragement 
from my family, but also I needed money. It's always easy to say, go and start a business, but let's say usually first six, 12 months, you don't have any cash. And in worst case scenario, you also invest your own cash into, yeah. into your own company. So you're actually actively losing cash. So without having some sort of buffer, it's a very risky move. Not an, and not an impossible, but at that time for me, it felt very risky. And I guess this is a good segue now, Paul. Tell our audience about Fluffy. What is Fluffy all about? How did it come about? Yeah, so it kind of combined two of my passions. One was uh, FinTech and SureTax and anything data-driven technological projects with my passion for pets, which are two very diff different things. I always found insurance, especially, and I will explain what I do. Uh, financial services always the least sexy in terms of talking to your consumer. And I was always wondering how I build something that, you know, in, in those sectors that you're passionate about. So what we're doing at Fluffy, and as you could probably guess by the name, it's something to do with pets. So what we're doing, we're in a mission to make pet care less stressful and more affordable. We are creating a well-being first pet insurance product that rewards responsible pet owners for people who are based in the UK. Company Vitality will be the best example for human health. So we have Vitality for Vitality for pets. The better care of your pet you take, the better your insurance terms. And that's one side of things. But the other is with our product, you also get all the support you need. We're bringing all expensive, and speaking from a personal experience, very expensive pet care services under one manageable bill, which helps people to yeah make it make it more enjoyable, but also more affordable. The category I'm fascinated by. I'm not a pet lover. I got chased by a dog very early in life and I was traumatized. And for me, it's like, oh no, I'm always going to be the one person that gets bitten. You know, my dog never bites anybody. And it's like, oh, you got bit. I'm sorry. But talk to us a little bit when you're going through this business. How did you figure out the market size or even the persona of a pet owner? And does it differentiate by gender? Is it male? pet owner different than the female pet owner. I'm curious to understand your market. It's actually, it's one of the, I would say one of the surprising markets. It's one of the markets you probably never heard of. Oh, globally, pet care market is 220 billion market. It's incredibly big. Pet insurance, for example, uh, to give you in the UK, 60% of households have a pet which is a wow. ridiculous number. There are more pets. And I think what always struck me, there are more pets being bought than babies being born in the UK. Not babies being bought, but babies being born in the, in the UK. Just, I sometimes misspeak and a couple of times I misspoke at uh, one of my speaking engagements and it actually didn't. I got a lot of confused faces. Well, well, who is buying babies and why? But no, there are actually more pets being bought uh, than babies. And so those, I would say, like hard numbers. And if we jump, for example, into insurance specifically, pet insurance is one of the fastest growing insurance in the UK. In many countries, it's, still, it's also one of the fastest growing insurance products. In, in the UK, 50% of pets are insured, which is a crazy number. Like how many people have private health insurance? And unit economics on pet insurance are very similar to human health. You actually make more money selling pet insurance. That's considered to be Jeez. one of the most But what I always found, I would say, my wife always says this, and I always this with me, 
there's a saying which I often use to explain why I'm passionate about what we do. And the saying goes that pets are new kids, plants are new pets, and kids are for the rich. So because pets are new kids, the spending is different, the care is different. And for me personally, well, we started last year when my wife and I, we got our dog. And I was like, it's impossible to pay that amount. It was a ridiculous amount of money. Insurance was expensive, food was expensive, training was expensive, vet was expensive. An average visit to a vet costs you 75 pounds. It's crazy. It's a ridiculous amount. And we believe that, but also it brings you so much joy. Like for me and my wife, our dog is one of the biggest happiness factors in, in our life. And for me, it's, I really want this happiness to, to be there without stress and being worried that if your pet gets injured or something happens there, you're not going to lose your quarter of your annual salary. That's not where we want to be as, as humans. So the business was born out of the idea that this is just too expensive. It's almost cost prohibitive. We need to come up with an alternative solution. So you've never operated in the pet space. You've been head of growth for a number of companies. How did you transition from taking that idea and turning it into a business? And not only a business, this is a tech business as well. Well, it's a good question. So I would, I, I know Pat kind of screams in our business, there is a big insurance element to that. So, and I had some exposure to that. Overall, to be honest, in my experience, you can get immersed into any industry in three months and you can get very well connected today in six months. I had very little exposure to insurance before. I had some. It took us three months and now six months, I would say, for me to know most people in our space, in adjacent spaces, know what's going on and insurance is a very secretive space. So it's not, a lot of things are not public information. And so you can move to any space fairly quickly if you really want to, but it's like you become a student. You go around, you listen to people, you ask questions, you go around, you speak to people and soon you start hearing the same names. And once you mention those names, people start to respect you. They go like, you know, this guy, you know, this John. Of course, John, and then you go to another guy and you go to another guy and then and you build this network of people and then you create this echo chamber around yourself where people go, this guy knows everything about insurance. It's doable. It's much faster than people think, but you need to become a student. It's like same as uni. Mm-hmm. All study, read Wait, all the case study, read all the white papers, be like people, go to the same events, meet same people. It's fun if you like this, <laughs> if you like this, yeah. not much. No. I like that. I've got a question for you, Pavel, but I also have one for you, Dion. 60% of the households have pets. Do you have a pet? I've never asked you that question before. I'd love to know why and why not. And then on your side, back to you on the podcast. So you've decided to start this business. You've got, you're a student of the game. You've got some experience, your passion, which is important. What are your next like top two hires that you brought on to help you? So Dion, let us know first and then we'll jump to Pavel. I'm definitely a pet home. So I've always been, I've always had pets around me throughout my life. Always a dog person though, if I'm being honest with you. I had a very much a relationship with dogs. And then when we came across to the UK, we flew across to the UK in 2013. And we actually brought our dog with us. That is how committed we are to, to our pets. But anyway, long story short, we had, when COVID struck, we had to put our dog down, unfortunately. 
And what was quite interesting, we could not, for the large of all the money on the earth, find a place where we could adopt a dog during COVID. It was insane. We even went as far as trying to bring an animal across from Romania and we couldn't bring the animal across because of the travel restrictions. And we decided that, well, we have to have an animal because we are a pet home. And the easiest animal to get was a cat. So during COVID, we got two kittens. And I've now moved from being a dog daddy to a cat daddy. And I never thought I would actually take to these cats the way we have. And yeah, they're just part of our life, Satish. Always had animals. There's fish, there's parrots, there's cats, there's dogs. It's always been in our life. Beautiful. I I met my wife seven years ago and she was terrified of pets, terrified of dogs. She was terrified. It took me six years to get her excised slowly. It was like painful process to the, to get that. And now she's like, yeah, around our dog all the time. She was like, yeah. the dog sleeps like next to our bed. And like my wife, well, she was terrified of a dog being nearby. So it's some, some people it takes time, but then it becomes, it's again, it's like having a child. If you are not ready to have a child, or if you already had a child and you don't want to have a second one, there are two scenarios. So yeah, well, Dion, if you need pet insurance, you need to know the right person or you need to talk to pets for the right person. You see what I'm saying? It's easy, then, easy to sell the product. Pavel, you've got no idea what we pay a month for pet insurance for these two cats. It's, we'll talk offline. But that was my frustration. Like it costs, it's cheaper to insure a house yeah. than to insure a pet. It's ridiculous. You can insure your like, For the you non-pet know, guy here, the non-pet guy here, can you guys throw some numbers out? I'm curious. What is expensive and what is Fluffy doing to combat that? Just, I need some numbers to make sense of this. Yeah. So let's say, like, let's say we talk dogs, training a dog now, an hour of dog training will cost you between 50 to 100 pounds an hour. And you would usually need at least 10 sessions. So here we go. You can be easily pay one grand. Our point is because training and the behavior same as humans, it's part of risks for insurance, but also part of the journey. We give it for free. We work with what, like person who creates content for us is a number one best-selling author of dog books in the UK. So it creates like step-by-step growth plan. If you have a puppy, we tell you exactly what you need to do. And it's super stressful. I think Dion can probably will agree with that. When you get a dog, you don't know what's going on. Your dog destroys the house, barks, all the crazy shit, fuss and shits actually as well in the house and for us the whole idea is it's problem from business perspective what i like about insurance and services we offer we actually for us it's beneficial for your pet to be healthy it's not for us just to charge you money on insurance what makes us different and what i strongly live in if i expect dion to actually uh, take right care of the pet because otherwise we are paying money for that i'm also responsible for providing all the tools and we don't provide all the tools now but in the future all the tools to make the process easy and cheap or free. That's what I believe in. It's an only, like if he pays money for insurance, it means that sure him from risks. And obviously I want him not to cause any risks. But mm-hmm. and it's only fair for me to ask him if I provide him with all the tools he needed. Otherwise it's kind of a ridiculous ask. Be responsible with that. Uh, it's your property drought. Yeah. Go throughout, you know, what to do. So having, we give unlimited vets. Uh, and now if you want to go and ask a vet a question, you would cost you between 50 to 75 pounds. If you get insurance with us, call a vet, chat to a vet whenever you need it. 
chat to behaviorists, chat to nutritionists, ask questions about food. Food is a big problem. Digestive problems cause problems with cats and dogs. We are lo- not something we have now. We're launching nutrition solutions for, for that as well. So the idea is you basically pay less for insurance. And we're also offering more affordable insurance plans. You pay less for insurance, which is, we try to make it more comprehensive, but also get all those services, which would cost you money under the same bill without charging you anything extra. Doesn't cost you any, anything extra. And that's what we believe in. And something you are, Stitch, you asked something before, which I completely forgot. Uh, Just when you're starting this thing off, now you're in there. What is your first few immediate team member skill sets look like? A lot of our founders, they jump in and then the next two, three hires is critical to build that core base. I think for me, it was finding the right co-founder. And when I started, I knew who I wanted to bring on board. So I had a friend with whom we played around with lots of ideas. So he's an engineer. So we brought co-founder and CTO, but I brought him and I always say this to other founders. I brought him as a co-founder, not a CTO. So he's work, just to be clear, he works as a CTO, but his value is being a co-founder. He's not an engineer. He works as an engineer, but his job is more than that. And both him and I will always say it's, there's some weird belief in the tech, like in startup world that you need a CTO as a co-founder. I believe you need a co-founder because it's incredibly stressful, a difficult journey, and you need someone around you. But now with so many no-code tools, it doesn't need to be a CTO. It can be a product person, can be a marketing person, can be anyone. I believe that there is value in co-founder. So for me, the first guy was my co-founder. And the second was an amazing engineer. We have one of the, I would say, extremely talented engineers and for us, it's very easy to hire because on the one hand, we do a lot of back office in insurance. So actually very complex technical solutions. How we basically, I'm not sure, Dion, if you face that issue, but if you have pet insurance, for example, the big problem for me was always you go, you have, you go to a vet, you have insurance, but you have to pay out of your pocket first and then get reimbursed. If your bill is very high, you might not have money straight away and the vet might say, well, we can't treat your pet. Well, for why, for what? And you have to put your pet down or your pet has to suffer because you don't have cash on hand. For me, it's a ridiculous concept. So there's an interesting technical solution for that where you actually don't have to pay your pocket. So it's easy to get engineers because we say, look, we, you have to figure, I don't know how to do this. I have an idea. You have to build it. It's an exciting technical challenge, but also you work in a quite nice and passionate environment of being, you help cats, you have people, and it's amazing, you can talk to any user. I'm sure the only one who met for a beer, we talk a lot about, you talk about cats, dogs, and we can talk, it, it's people want to talk about. Our first Correct. hundred users came from me and my co-founder going to a park, literally going to a park, same person with a dog saying, hey, can I talk to you? How, if I come to you, Sedition, say, can I talk to you on the street? What's the probability of you saying, yes, let's talk? I would guess very low. Zero. Exactly. Yeah. If I come to you, Dion, and you had a dog and say, can I talk to you about your dog? What's the probability of me you saying less? Of course. Like, what's the question? Not for first hundred people, 90, we only had one person who said no, only one out of hundred. If we were selling a marketing CRM or financial automation tool, out of hundred people, only one would say yes. Yeah. Because people want some, and that's why for us, it's easy to attract talent because people want us to solve the problems. You want to come to us and say, guys, what you're doing, what you're doing is wrong. Here's a better solution. And that's a very few industries where you get this. It's like, for me, what got me started was my personal problem. 
But what got me excited is there is technical challenge you have to face. There is also passion of users, passion of customers, people who actually want to help you build an amazing company. If you do like automation platform, which is, I'm not saying less or more valuable, it's a valuable business, but very few customers of yours will go, you know what, like, I'm passionate about this. I'm passionate about marketing automation solutions. I mean, actually, I am passionate about marketing automation solutions. So if you have any good ones, please reach out. But there are very few weird people like myself. Pavel, you said that you went out and physically spoke to people in the park, and this is how you found your first hundred. If I'm not yep. mistaken, I read somewhere that you now have more than 10,000 users on your platform. 20. 20,000 users. We grow 35% month to month. That is mental. So talk to me about that. That is what I'm interested in. How, from your first hundred, what have you done from a marketing perspective, from an approach perspective that has contributed to this rapid growth? Honestly, I think I'm probably the worst person. So we are the worst company to benchmark it to with simply because, again, it's such an easy space to be in. For us, the first time we actually basically approached people. First thousand, my co-founder and I were working around parks and giving flyers. It actually was very, I, oh, if you're doing consumer brands and you have a more or less, I would say, defined demographic, at least female, male, or something like not just too generic, there is nothing better than hanging out flyers and having conversations with people. The best marketing channel ever in the early days. You don't get that many signups. You, get, you can get thousands, yeah. couple of hundred, but the amount of information you learn is crazy. Then we tried a lot of online communities. There, you'll be surprised by the number of online communities around pets and dogs specifically. There are tens of thousands of Facebook groups, and you post there, you get hundred signups straight away. Fairly easy, and there are a lot of paid channels and partnerships uh, that are out there. So for us, marketing, I would say, was fairly straightforward thing to do. And also the problem is very defined. Does your dog destroy your house? Come in, join our app. Have you, are you tired of paying 50 pounds for a vet question? Come to us, we'll cover that. So those things are fairly straightforward, but it's not, we don't need to convince you that your dog destroying the house is the problem. You pretty much know that already. One of the, uh, one, one of the myths that we see with early say startups is they do sort of the product validation, like what you did, you know, talk to a hundred people. In my case, we talked to about a hundred parents for Schoolio to see what their education pain point is and all that kind of stuff. But once you get that data, it's okay. Now we need to go raise a lot of money because we need to buy all these customers and we need to go on Facebook and Google or run SCM programs and conversion tactics and things like that. And all of a sudden the focus becomes so much on buying customers through algorithm versus organic. How do you balance the two? So that's a very, I think it's super good question. I mean, first raising money is always an interesting one. Uh, for consumers, bootstrapping is difficult for, because you obviously don't like, if you do enterprise software, you can sign a bank contract and it pays the bills for a team of engineers. For B2C, yes, you need to raise some money. The reality of that, there are not that many channels. If you like, I think the more you can do with your hands initially, there is a famous saying in YC, do things that don't scale. And I think it's super appropriate. You can always test, test pay channels. 
for some they work really good. I mean, if you look, I know some mobile apps, for example, that have profitable unit economics on Facebook ads. Why not? You need to be mindful of not being too dependent because the problem is there's nothing wrong with paid. Don't get me wrong. If you have good unit economics, why not? It's another channel. Obviously, if you can have amazing SEO that drives 1 million visitors on your website a month, yes, you don't need maybe Facebook ads, but it's very hard to get 1 million free visitors on your website. There is nothing wrong with paid advertisement as long as A, your unit economics work, but B, you understand that if the channel stops, what do you do next? If Facebook becomes too expensive and it happens, what do you do? Or if your space gets saturated, there is a very, like every financial projections I've seen, most 99%. They show that your cost per install goes down, or cost per acquiring user goes down, because you go well on Facebook, for example. The reality always goes up, or it stays static, like what people expect goes down and stays static. It always goes up. So at some point, maybe not in the next month, but in a year time, it will become too expensive. And that's when you already have to be prepared for SEO and big partnerships and that's what's time for you not to relax and say, oh, it works, but let's relax. But okay, what can be built in, in the meantime? It's like, if Facebook ads work really well for you, now it's time to invest in SEO. Because like in one year, they will not. And if you have something good in place, that's what you do. But nothing wrong with paid. There is a whole idea of like, yeah, the problem is I saw companies raising one mil from VCs pumping into Facebook, into a product that doesn't work. Or well, there is no product market. Product doesn't work. Unit economics don't work. Cog doesn't work. Cog Total TV doesn't exist. Just found. Sorry, my Apple Watch completely agrees with me. And then you basically pump this money, go to VCs, you try to raise again, they go, well, what, why did you pump in money in the first place? If you have right. great market fit and good unit economics, pump money. Like, that's what you raise money for. Go for market share. Go crazy. Google has Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, whatever you can find. Pump money into that. If you need economics work, for most startups, they don't. And yeah. that's what I see the problem. So when you're looking at labels, Pavel, because I grew up at a time where the world was simple. You had salespeople, you had brand managers, you had chief marketing officers. That was it. But today you have digital marketers, social media marketers. And now we have, with the rise of ChatGPT, prompt marketers. You have growth hackers. That's new. Okay, you know, that's new. I would vote. Will... It's crazy. There's a new sector of people that market themselves as AI prompters. And there you hire them for them to go game these AI tools with prompts. And it's crazy. And so when you look at the new business architecture, you've got your co-founder, you've got somebody responsible for revenue, somebody responsible for content marketing and SEO and things. Throwing labels at this as just an organizational chart, what are some of the skill sets and labels should people consider? Are content people still important or is it all AI driven now? Is growth hackers still a thing? I don't hear about them anymore. What are some of the labels that people should be paying attention to? Or maybe um, not. Yeah, I think it's the same as engineering. Before, remember, like, there were software engineers. You're a developer. Now you have so many variations. Like every year I feel like there is like new, I say product managers. Designers, there's UI, UX, UX, product designer, and there's like, you'd be calling them differently. There is a myriad of them. HR, like how many variations of it? Like chief happiness officers, chief HR officer, people officer, but chief HR officer and people officer are different. And there is chief recruitment and chief 
firing officers. There are so many of them. The other, that's why I like that. That that's why I like finance people. There's CFO, there's financial controller. Fuck you, everyone else. There's literally nothing else. Finance people are finance. Like, that's why I like finance people. There's literally nothing around. Your CFO, you're like financial controller. That's it. Like beautiful. Yeah, with marketing. The thing is, again, like what I believe as a founder, you need to try and test marketing channels. To start, let's say if you talk about marketing. You try and test, you see something works, something would really not work. For example, I would say it's if people don't know that the problem really exists and you need to educate them on the problem, I always think about the problem of like transfer wise and money transfers. Some of the, it will be hard to do some of the particular campaigns because people might be not searching for that. But overall, you need to test a couple of things. And then I would say you bring people related to those channels you identified and you basically feel that. I don't like actually people, a lot of founders go, I want a marketing person who do everything. You can do everything, but you would be equally good potentially, but not equally amazing. And sometimes you basically, but you always, as a founder, you can say that there are some must have things like SEO is a big thing for us. For example, then SEO must be a top skill. If they can do performance marketing, good, but we're not judging based on that. SEO is like, well, what well, I think it's important. Um, to understand which label in this case or skill you need first and you rank. Then based on that you hire, but there, I've seen so many times with, you know, founders go, yeah, I can't find a good person enough in our marketing team. And I go like, who are you looking for? A gross manager. So sure, that's relatively broad. Well, what do you look looking for gross manager to do? A bit of Facebook ads and Google ads and a bit of SEO. And there are some couple of partnerships we won't do. And brand is also very important for us. Conversion rate optimization. I really want them to work with product and sales operations. And also if you can actually do financial modeling, it will be super good. But you know what? And there's some couple of other projects. Oh, 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 and also like website development. Like if they can actually do like a bit of like CSS and HTML, but a bit of Java, obviously. Well, who are we looking for? <laughs> if you have all those skills, like and also we're looking to pay them 50 grand. I'm like, sure, good luck. Still, let's say what I've seen some with engineers. Oh, we want like front end who does back and a bit of AI. And they also, yeah, ideally want to be a QA engineer. Well, just what do you need? And per person goes, actually want to have like nice website. Just go for front end engineer. That's what you need. It's not point putting all the shit around that. And I see that a lot. So it's, there are labels indeed. And there are a lot of them. And quite often new things appear to be hired. No one wants to hire marketing managers in what one hire growth managers. So you change the label. Mm -hmm. And right. GPT, child GPT prompts are an interesting one. I need to explore. Maybe I need to add it to my LinkedIn profile. My backup plan. That's my backup plan. If all this school deal fails, I will be a chat GPT prompt writer for hire on Fiverr. Um, I just actually and... don't because they have an API. I'm not sure what you actually do that. You just plug into the API, which is like super straightforward. But to be honest, it's like, to be fair, that now still web website developers when weeks exist. I still see like people who go like Crazy. website developers go like, do you realize how many no code solutions now to build a website? And yeah. Anyway. Uh, no, that's great, man. I appreciate I, I appreciate the organizational strategy because so many of the founders we meet, they watch all this content and they go down this rabbit hole, like you said, of like, I need to find this one person that can do fifty different things where you really need to get really good at doing that first thing to get you to the next milestone and then to the next milestone. And because you can learn a lot of this stuff on TikTok and YouTube and get that 10% knowledge, everybody is now an expert. 
because they want something this much to go. I know enough to say, I put on my resume and I'm this. And so weeding through all that to get to real experts like you're talking about, I think it's, it's a really interesting new skill from leadership perspective. But you said a very good point about milestones and I think a very common mistake. And that's actually funny because if you talk to found like actual founders and to people who advisors, they have very two different stories about hiring people. Advisors always go like, oh, hire people and plan for the next five years. They will be a future manager. They will be future leaders. Never is the case. Well, and if you talk to actual founders, they say, okay, who do you need to get from pre-seed to seed? Who do you need from seed to series? Hire those people. If person, if you can get a marketing person who's super junior and you hope that in three years will be amazing CMO, yeah, but you will die before that. You will not be able to hit your targets. You will not raise your seed round, and there will be amazing CEO, CMO in a different company. What you need, and very always clear, you need an engineer, not for series. If you're pre-seed, you need a C, software engineers for to get to a seed round. You don't want them to manage a 20 people team because you don't have 20 people. By that time, they might leave the company and hire a new person. Obviously, to think about the future, you don't want to hire people like with bad culture fit. But just don't think about that. I've seen a lot of people hiring like future CMO. They do you need a CMO today? No, then don't hire future CMO. It's that's well said. Over to you, DR. I've got lots of questions for you, but I'm actually I'm looking at a lot of your articles that you've written. You constantly give credit to mentors and you also always acknowledge your wife. Now, I'd like to. to talk about, but so if we talk about the importance of mentorship, how have they contributed to your personal growth and growth into the organization? And then my second question around your wife is, she's obviously a very important part in this journey. What does her support mean to you and give you? So the first one, I think it's very straightforward. I'm big with this. So we went through Techstars Accelerator, same as previous guests in the podcast, Alex and Jayshan from Stance. So we, that's how we know each other. And Techstars have a, a simple slogan, give first. We were lucky to get some really cool mentors. I often refer to what we do is Vitality for Pets. And it also is because you're based not in the UK. Vitality is one of the coolest, I would say, health insurance brands in the UK. And I was incredibly lucky to get to talk to the MD who became one of my mentors. He helped us. He supported us. He's an amazing, uh, his name is Nick, an absolutely phenomenal guy. So I was lucky having good mentors. And I think you need to give back in the community. Same as always, if you, some of a founder reaches out to me and it be, believe in what they do, I always say, we'll make at least three introductions to investor, to a partner, to whoever who, you know, you think I can help you introduce you to it. It's a small community. It's a big community, but small at the same time. And helping each other, I believe, is a key, absolutely fundamental part of that. So for me, it's very straightforward. Is mentors. Okay, that's a very interesting point. So mentors are super helpful. Also for founders, never ever take advisors on equity. That's a big, that's one of the key things to learn from tech stars. Never take advisors. Take them as investors or take them as mentors. Never give away equity for an advice. I can give you as much advice as you want about anything. Am I worth your equity? No. And I think like on our journey, a good mentor 
will never ask for equity. If they are actually passionate about what you do, but also you want to hear advice from people who have achieved something, and usually they can put a small check in your business. Sometimes there's conflict of interest, sometimes they cannot, but they will not ask for equity because they're usually well-off people. People who are well-off and build something in their lives, they're usually not chasing 0, 25% of your company or 1% of your company. They would either say, look, let me put some more chat, or you basically, yeah, they are happy to mentor you just because they are passionate about what you do and passionate about you sounds wrong, but passionate about your personality. That's a big takeaway. But mentors are important. Find the right one. Be careful who you listen to as well. But also it's a difference between listening and following the advice. Listen to jazz, but not necessarily all everything people say, because otherwise you get so much conflicting advice yeah. all the time. So that matters. So that's a, on my wife. I think that she's that for me, my wife is the most important fundamental part of my life, my professional life. I, yeah, I have to give credit. I have to give credit to her, not because she says I have to, but because uh, yeah, she really taught me a lot how to be the good person, how to be more empathetic, how to listen, how to be, you see, even now it starts speaking slower and calmer. She, yeah, she taught me a lot. And I think as a founder, it's very important for you to understand, to, to keep an eye on your personal life, because you have a lot of stress in your work. If you need to manage that, you need to mitigate that. And the most, I think, important things I read about personal life and startups was coming from a Netflix book. What's the name of the Netflix book by the Mark? What's the name of the first founder? Mark something. I know, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. So basically he wrote a book and the book is nice, highly recommend. But I think the most useful advice I got from the book was every Tuesday. And I'm not sure how true is that. I hope he didn't lie on that. Every Tuesday he would leave the office at 6 p.m. to go and sit, to have a dinner with his wife. Every Tuesday, regardless of what happens. And we started doing this, this the same because that's, and it's, I think it's one of the best business decisions I've made. It's Tuesday, regardless of what happens in my life, how difficult it's work, how many projects I do, like other days I can stay until midnight, but Tuesday, Saturday, Sunday I can work, but Tuesday after six or seven, I'm going on a date. Everyone knows this. My co-founder knows this. Like there is, it's a not negotiable part of, uh, part of my life. That's the, that's actually the only non-negotiable part of my life is a Tuesday after six or seven and dinner date or a date in general. Can't Very be moved, nice. can't be shifted, can't be rescheduled, can't be postponed. No, that's sacred. Good for you. That's high recommend. Good for you, man. Hello. It's been great chatting to you. Absolutely enjoyed the conversation. I mean, there's so much that we would still want to ask you, but I'm conscious that we've taken a lot of your time. If people want to find out more about what you do, where do they go? They can find me on LinkedIn. So Pavel Gertzberg, I'm always happy to chat. A, if you have pets, please provide me your feedback, ideas, suggestions. I would love to hear that. If you have anything that you basically want to share about as a fellow startup founder, want to ask for advice or for introductions, please reach out to me as well. Yeah. If there is anything else I can help you with, also please reach out. Always I have love help. that. I love that. Thank you very much. 
Year 1 is hosted by Dion Kloppers and Suthish Bala and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. It is engineered by Bluemex. For more Year 1 content subscribe where you get your podcasts and visit bluemex.io to join us on Discord.